0: Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with today's expected announcement from President Zelensky's office that the head of Ukraine's military will be replaced, which coincides with a Senate vote of 67-32 to to advance a standalone bill with aid for Ukraine, Israel and Taiwan, which faces an uncertain vote in the House. Joining us to discuss the former comedian-turned-wartime leader and the stark difference between the open and transparent nature of Ukrainian politics compared with the dictatorship behind the Kremlin walls, which just cancelled the token opposition candidate because he was gaining popularity, is Simon Schuster, a reporter for Time magazine based in New York City by way of Moscow, Kiev, and Berlin. He has previously covered Russia and the former Soviet Union for Reuters, the Associated Press, the Moscow Times, and foreign policy. And his latest book just out is The Showman, Inside the Invasion that Shook the World and Made a Leader of Vladimir Zelensky. We will discuss his latest article in Time magazine, This is the Way Out, Inside Ukraine's Plan to Arm Itself. Then, with the Supreme Court hearing today on Colorado's case to ban Trump from the ballot, clearly signalling a win for Trump, we'll look ahead at a fact-free, violence-prone election ahead and speak with Rick Perlstein, the author of the New York Times bestsellers The Invisible Bridge, The Fall of Nixon and the Rise of Reagan, Nixon Land, The Rise of a President and the Fracturing of America, as well as Before the Storm, Barry Goldwater and the Unmaking of the American Consensus, and most recently, Reaganland, America's Right Turn, 1976-1980. to 1980. He is currently a contributing editor and board member of In These Times magazine, and also a contributor to The American Prospect, where his latest article is, The Real Threat to Our Border, Trump, Republican Governors and MAGA Media have summoned their armed fanatics to the Rio Grande. Then finally, with 17 donor nations refusing to fund UNRWA based on an Israeli dossier many are disputing, we will speak with Michael Bosaque, a global affairs analyst and a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. Currently based in Ukraine, he was previously the UNICEF spokesperson for Gaza and the West Bank and we will discuss his article at CNN, UNRWA's Day of Reckoning is Near. And before we begin, I would like to thank our listener donors who keep Background Briefing independent, corporate and commercial free without paywalls or constant fundraising by making tax-deductible donations to our nonprofit foundation, the Public Truth Media Foundation at publictruthmedia.org or at slash donate As we enter this fact-free and violence-prone election year with much of the country under the cult-like spell of a deranged demagogue spewing constant lies while inciting hatred and violence, help us continue to seek out facts and information to awaken America's silent majority before our democracy is trumped by fascism. And joining us now is Simon Schuster, a reporter for Time magazine based in New York City by way of Moscow, Kiev, and Berlin. He has previously covered Russia and the former Soviet Union for Reuters, the Associated Press, the Moscow Times, and foreign policy. And his latest book just out is The Showman, Inside the Invasion that Shook the World and Made a Leader of Vladimir Zelensky. Welcome to Background Briefing, Simon Schuster.
1: Thank you. Nice to be with you.
0: Well, thanks for joining us, Simon, and of course, today we're learning that Vladimir Zelensky has fired his, the head of his military, although it's not entirely clear whether General Zelensky will still be around. So, what's your understanding of this latest move that was anticipated and often discussed before this happened?
1: Yeah, this, this has been a long time coming. Um you know, in, in the interviews that I was doing for, for my book and for my re- reporting for Time, um, this was an open secret uh, in the president's office going back to the early months of the invasion. I mean, by, by summer of 2022, the, the tensions between Zelensky and his top military commander, General Valery Zaluzny, um, were, yeah, well-known and widely talked about um, within the, the leadership and, and the power structures in Kiev. Um, so uh, I think if If anything surprises me about this, it's just how long um, it it took uh, for for this this to culminate these tensions. Um, And and, uh, yeah, on the other hand, (laughs) I think people in Zelensky's circle and the president himself also understood the dangers that come with dismissing your top military commander in the middle of a full-scale war.
0: So how is he going to get around that? And obviously, it's not a good look for foreign donors. The Europeans have ponied up. They've managed to get around Hungary's Orbán to get about, what, $56 billion to Ukraine. And and today, the Senate took its first vote uh, on a package that's no longer tied to immigration that ha- has money for Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan. And the vote in the Senate today... Was sixty-seven to thirty-two. There are more votes to be taken, and its fate in the house is uncertain. But this is not happening at a good time in terms of the Ukraine debate over here. Surely,
1: I guess there's never a good time for a shakeup like this uh, in the middle of a war. But I, I think that for foreign countries, foreign leaders, you know, they were also aware of the tensions between these two men. Um, they were aware uh, how how. Difficult they had become, and how how the two men had been clashing behind the scenes. So for for a lot of the foreign donors, uh, I know that the the foreign Western military leaders that I've talked to, they wanted these tensions to be resolved one way or another. Um, you know, a, a common point of view in in the in the U.S. leadership and in Europe is that uh, Z- Zelensky needs to have uh, a military command he trusts. Uh, and that he works with smoothly. Um, and, and that unfortunately wasn't the case, um, with, with General Zaluzny in, in his, in his position, the position that he has now lost. Um, so I, I think there is hope that, um, this could result in a, um, uh, a smoother functioning of, of the, of the war council with the high command in Kyiv. Uh, but I should say that General Zaluzny, uh, is extremely popular within the rank and file. He's he's a hero uh, and seen as a hero uh, among Ukrainians, among regular Ukrainians. He's vastly popular. So I, I think this could lead to some instability, both within the ranks of the military and in society more generally, speaking out in defense of, uh, of General Zaluzhnyi. But it depends. Um, I I don't know. We haven't seen that yet. So we're still waiting for some some reaction, both from from uh, the rank and file, uh, from society, from from uh, other political leaders in Kyiv. It's it's a big step. And and I think we're going to see the consequences playing out in the coming days and weeks, if not longer.
0: So let's talk about your new book just out, uh, Simon Schuster, The Showman, Inside the Invasion that Shook the World and Made a Leader of Vladimir Zelensky. You've spent some time with him, obviously. The contrast between him and Putin could not be more stark in the sense that we're talking about something that's happening transparently, which is a major shake-up at the top of a government, and this is an open government. This is a a democratic government, as opposed to Mm -hmm. what's happening in Moscow, where... Putin just, just removed Boris Nuddestin from uh, being a challenger because he was doing <laughs> he was doing too well. He got a petition going, and uh, I take it that the name somehow echoes with the word hope. So, what what's uh, the the situation in Russia in, in comparison to your mind?
2: It's <laughs> totally
1: different. Yeah, in R- Russia is uh, a. a- Full-on authoritarian state bordering on totalitarianism. You know, any idea that there are some kind of um, legitimate elections that Vladimir Putin is going to hold with any any competitors is ridiculous. Uh, you know, I uh, lived and worked in Russia between 2006 and 2013, when there there were some kind of street protests, there was some kind of opposition. Um, they they were repressed and and they were they had a very hard time uh, you know organizing um demonstrations and trying to run uh in elections but it was still more or less possible in those years that's more than a decade ago uh P- putin's uh slide into uh, deep authoritarianism has continued apace, pace especially since the invasion began so I, I don't think it's even worth paying much attention to these phony uh opposition candidates that even for a brief moment seem to have some kind of uh, chance of running against Putin. That, that's just impossible. There's, there is no opposition in Russia. Putin has destroyed it all. And if this, this Nadezhdin guy, you know, looked like some kind of opposition candidate for a moment, I assure you that was all perfectly coordinated with the Kremlin and done, uh, with, with their approval. Um, yes, if, if, if he's now being kind of pushed aside and, and asked to step down or step aside, um, That may be because even this kind of phony opposition was deemed by Putin and his his cronies as a little bit too dangerous and too close to real democracy. But I assure you, it's no such thing. This is all for show.
0: So we've had here in this country, of course, political leaders who were former actors like Ronald Reagan and I guess to some extent Donald Trump, given The Apprentice, which was of course made the impression that he was a great businessman when, in fact, uh, the record pretty much makes clear with all his bankruptcies and others that he wasn't quite the great businessman that uh, this series presented and obviously helped him frame himself that way to the electorate. And he did get elected, of course, in 2016. So it's amazing, though, that you could have an actor who is a comedian, who sort of almost overnight becomes this incredible wartime leader. I find it stunning. So you've chronicled it. What's your impression of this amazing transition?
1: I'd say it's more of an evolution, yeah. I mean, we we saw him appear, many of us, uh, kind of fully formed as a wartime leader um, in the early days of the invasion in 2022. Um, And it's true, the starkest transformation when he really stepped into the role of some kind of... Churchillian head of state, um, leading his country into war. Um, that transformation was was uh, most most stark and visible in in those early days. But but really his transition has taken longer. You know he transitioned from a comedian into a politician. Many people first saw Zelensky and learned the name Zelensky during um Donald Trump's first impeachment uh, in 2019 uh, a, a scandal in which Zelensky of course played a, a, a leading uh, role or at least a, an important role um and you know over time I've 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 spent time with him through the through the years of his presidency um over the last 4 years or so and and I've seen him evolve from a fairly fairly naive um, optimistic easygoing guy into this steely very tough very driven uh, wartime leader, such that I find it hard to even believe today that that this we're talking about the same person uh, from 2019 to to today. Uh, the the transformation has been that that stark and and extreme.
0: And what about some of the criticism of him in the extent to which even he was considered to be more Russian than than Ukrainian? Is there anything to that?
3: well
1: part of the part of the evolution in his in his personality um is that you know it, with the start of the full scale invasion and and really through his his career in politics more generally when he when he became president in 2019 he has actively tried to kind of um uh, in, embody the ukrainian state and certainly since the invasion started in 2022 kind of rip the russianness out of himself um that has to do with with the language he speaks. You know, this came through very, very clearly in, in my time with him and our interviews. You know, he prefers Ukrainian now. That is the language of the state, even though he grew up speaking Russian. He's from a Russian-speaking family, a Russian-speaking part of the country. Uh, and it, it went down even to kind of cultural things, personal things, like the movies that he watched. Uh, you know, he couldn't stand the Soviet comedies that he grew up on uh, after what Russia has done. Um, in in the full scale invasion of Ukraine, so he's he's very consciously uh, and and um, with with a lot of uh, focus tried to separate himself from as he put it everything linked to the past, meaning the Soviet past, the the time when Russia dominated Ukraine and and was one country with Ukraine under the Soviet Union. Um, he sees his Main goal, or one of his main goals in this war, is, is to break those bonds of empire that uh, that Russia once had uh, over Ukraine, um, and and that's fundamentally what he wants to achieve—to to achieve that full independence uh, for for the Ukrainian nation from from its former Russian overlords.
0: Well, the common uh, phrase I understand in describing Russians that uh, the Ukrainians are using is Rashists, which is a play on the word Russia and fascist. Of course, the Uh irony being that from day one, Putin and his minions have tried to frame this as a war against Ukrainian fascists, which is of course an absurdity, and a very cynical one at that. Does he, I mean, we know know Zelensky hates Putin with a passion, but how does he feel about the Russian people? Because it's really depressing to the extent to which the Russian people do support this war And obviously, they've been propagandized enormously and brainwashed. But at the same time, how does he hold the Russian people responsible for going along with Putin? Yeah,
1: that's been an an interesting evolution and transformation in his thinking as well. Um, You know, early in the invasion, um, it surprised me the extent to which he still felt that he could speak to the Russian people, convince them to rise up against Putin and against this war. Um, he, he believed longer than many of his advisors that this, this was still possible that the Russian people were just afraid to speak out and if only he could reach them somehow he could uh, inspire them to resist this war but over time you know uh, as the days passed I, I saw him growing uh, well losing those illusions um, and uh, I think by the end of the first year of the invasion he he had completely lost hope in, in uh, the in Russian society, um, even some of the actors and producers and movie makers that he used to work with and be friends with, you know, he, he, he has no hope that they might uh, support Ukraine or stand up against this, this horrific invasion. And that's been very painful for him. You know, I I think it, it forced him again to, to confront the fact that these once brotherly nations are nothing of the sort, that they're going to be enemies for, probably a generation at least Um, that that's that's how he sees it and and um opinion polls in in russia the the best that we have you know over the course of these last two years do bear that out that there really is is no um anti-war movement of note inside russia and that that's been quite quite shocking to me honestly given the the barbarity of this war
0: so can we just touch on your latest article at Time, Simon Schuster? This is the way out inside Ukraine's plan to arm itself. It Given out. the nature of the debate, which will be happening now, that the Senate has passed the first part of the Ukraine aid package, but we don't know what's going to happen in the in the House, although mm-hmm. it, there is money for Israel, which may sweeten the deal for the House. But clearly this is a war. About drones. I think more than anything, even though Ukraine is short of artillery shells, and nevertheless, it seems to be making an enormous effort to develop drones, and Russia's getting its drones from Iran, largely. But would you agree, one, that this is a war of drones primarily, and how is uh, Ukraine doing in terms of creating its own military industrial base, given the uncertainty about aid from NATO and the United States? Yeah,
1: I think a good way to think of it is um, uh, one of the quotes that I that I got from from a source of mine for this most recent story is that war will be won in a factory. It's a war of attrition, Uh, meaning the the side that can um, produce weapons uh, to sustain this war um, quickly and quicker than the other side more effectively than the other side that they will win um, that's putting it quite starkly um, I, I think it has to do with much more than drones uh, drones have been i think the most noticeable uh, innovation and, and difference between this war and previous wars that we've seen uh, on this kind of scale um, drones have really shown their their ability to render for example tanks more or less obsolete uh, when you have a multi-million-dollar tank and it can be destroyed by a $500 drone, um, tanks start to seem like a, a poor investment. And the Ukrainians have very, very quickly um, uh, sought to uh, sought to make use of that by by mass producing drones, um, and, and they've been very effective at that. Um, but it's that's really not going to do the job for them. Um, they understand that they also need to produce really much cruder weapons like artillery shells, um, like armored armored personnel carriers to, to move their troops around the battlefield. Um, And they're trying to do that uh, as fast as possible. One of the reasons president Zelensky and his team have been so focused on uh, ramping up that uh, domestic military production inside Ukraine is that yes, they see that the support from the West, the shipments of arms from the West uh, they're declining um, President Zelensky has talked about and talked about that a lot, in particular when it relates to artillery shells, which are expended at an enormous rate um, uh, along the front lines, um, even today, every day. So they they see that. And, and one of the ways they're trying to ensure that they can sustain this fight for as long as they feel is necessary is is ramping up that domestic production of weapons. They've told me that, that won't do the job entirely, so they still are reliant on Western support. They still need that support to come through, but they're trying at least to, to hedge against a decline uh, in, the, in that support by by uh, reviving those factories uh, inside Ukraine.
0: So just in closing then, Simon Schuster, how do you think we're going to end up in a, in a few days' time when the dust has settled in terms of the shake-up? Uh, at the top in Ukraine and what's happening in in the Senate and the House here in the United States.
1: Um with the Senate and the House I'm I'm not such an expert in US politics but um I, I think with the shakeup in Kyiv where I've, where I've done pretty much all my reporting um since the invasion started um we're going to have to wait to see what General Zaluzhnyi says. Uh, we've only heard news of the dismissal uh, the general's dismissal from the the president's office. Uh, We have to wait and see what Zaluzhny says about it. Um, For example, does he make any move into politics? Um, Does he side with one of the opposition parties? Does he intend to challenge the president uh, in any arena, uh, in the political arena, in in the media? If so, that could be very destabilizing and be a serious uh, challenge to to, uh, Zelensky's authority. Um, We haven't seen that yet, but... um, you know, as, as, as I learned while reporting the book, um, there have been people around Zeluzny within the general staff who have at least been studying what it would take for him to uh, form a political party or launch some kind of uh, political campaign. Um, they, they've been uh, studying what what it would require, um, and and now we'll have to wait and see whether they they pull the trigger on that kind of move.
0: Well, Simon Schuster, I thank you very much for joining us here today.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Great to be with you. And again, I've been speaking with Simon Schuster, who's a reporter for Time magazine based in New York City by way of Moscow, Kiev, and Berlin. He has previously covered Russia and the former Soviet Union for Reuters, the Associated Press, the Moscow Times, and foreign policy. And his latest book just out is The Showman, Inside the Invasion that Shook the World and Made a Leader of Vladimir Zelensky." We're going to take a brief station break we're back looking into today's Supreme Court hearing on Colorado's case to ban Trump from the ballot, which clearly signaled a win for Trump. And we'll look ahead at a fact free, violence prone election ahead. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Rick Perlstein, who's the author of the New York Times bestsellers, The Invisible Bridge, The Fall of Nixon and the Rise of Reagan, Nixonland, The Rise of a President and the Fracturing of America, as well as Before the Storm, Barry Goldwater and the Unmaking of the American Consensus, and most recently, Reaganland, America's Right Turn, 1976 to 1980. He's currently a contributing editor and a board member of in these Times Magazine, has also contributed to the American Prospect, where his latest article is, The Real Threat to Our Border, Trump, Republican Governors and MAGA Media Have Summoned Their Armed Fanatics to the Rio Grande. Welcome to Background Briefing, Rick Perlstein.
2: Hey, Ian, it's good to be back with you.
0: Well, thanks for joining us, Rick. And of course, today's been a very busy news day. The latest breaking news comes from the Special Counsel investigating Biden's retention of classified documents. He found that... Guilty, the- right? Lock him up and throw away the keys going under the jail, right? <laughs> well, he basically found him liable for what he did and for sharing classified documents with a ghostwriter, but decided to decline to prosecute him because he's an elderly gentleman with a memory lapse, which is not exactly helpful. That's, that's, that's what the, the special prosecutor said? In his, uh, yes, in his report coming out today which seems like a gratuitous shot at him. But anyway, the other big news, of course, is the Supreme Court's hearing today on Colorado's case to take Trump off the ballot. And what was interesting about that was, first of all, it's it's obvious that the Supreme Court are going to rule in Trump's favor and that the Colorado lawyers didn't do a particularly good job. But (laughs) the press conference afterward with Trump is so revealing and so much in line with what you've been writing about him. It was so fact-free and violence-prone, it was just beyond belief. And he basically went on a rant about how immigrants are coming into this country from mental institutions and jails and that they're terrorists. And meanwhile, Trump just rolled over the reporters uh, making this campaign speech. So I see this as a portent of what we're going to be
2: dealing with uh, this year. Yeah, I, I didn't hear it, but the uh, the thing, yeah, as usual, I'm kind of stuck in the past. I've been writing about um, Howard Dean's campaign in 20, 2004 and what the consequences of for America of that were. When, when you know, just to remind people, he was the one guy running for president in two thousand and four who had a chance who said the Iraq War was a terrible idea, and like the media just like savaged him because they'd all been for the Iraq War. Uh, right. But the 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 he, what what jumped out at me is in your description is he says something about how all these people from mental institutions are coming to America. I'm almost certain in his kind of like, you know, he picks up these things. He picks up these little flotsams and jetsams from the past. And that almost certainly was his little brain, you know, thinking about what happened in 1980 when Fidel Castro was kind of suffering a lot of kind of political pressure. And he kind of opened the safety valve by letting thousands of people basically uh take these rickety boats to to florida and there was this sea of uh, refugees once again in 1980 and it was a big story in the year and this kind of urban legend grew up uh that 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 castro had opened up the jails and the mental hospitals and it was a total total bs i mean they were just you know regular people there were tiny tiny numbers who had you know been uh, in mental institutions because you know, Cuba was one of those places where they'd stick you in a mental institution, you know, just basically because you criticize Castro. So that must have kind of stuck with him. Of course, it's you know absolute nonsense. I mean, most of these people are fleeing terrible social conditions caused by American foreign policy. And I guess the bottom line is what you know, what I've been trying to write about in this weekly column of mine in the American Prospect that the American media just does not have the capacity, the routines, the paradigms, uh the skills uh, to report on this kind of you know fascist development. This guy who says that he is, you know, uh the savior of the country, that the law flows from for whatever he says it is, uh, that we're being, you know, attacked by people who are these terrible threats, who are just really just ordinary hungry people. And it goes out to these supporters who, whether he wins the most votes in uh, 2024 in November or not, will insist that he's the um, savior of the country and that he won. And, you know, either he will win and it will be a disaster because he has the, you know, basically the mandate of the Electoral College or he won't win and his supporters will very likely uh, take up arms to claim that he did. So uh, what do we do with that, especially since, um, well, you know, all apologies to someone who I think has been a pretty decent president in many ways. But Joe Biden is pretty old and decrepit and didn't have the character and presence of mind to kind of step 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 aside for a younger, more vital person who you know, just kind of look good on TV. Uh, So, yes, uh, we're swirling around this crazy poly crisis. That's this great word that, you know, this academic uh, coined, you know, and here we are in the, the the center of the maelstrom. And what do we do? I mean, that's kind of where we find ourselves in this day and every day.
0: Well, I think what encapsulates the moment happened yesterday in a live broadcast on Fox news with Sean Hannity live speaking with the head of the guardian angels in times square. And the guardian Angels guy was there basically to criticize the the mayor of New York City for his handling of refugees and migrants, and this guy Curtis Silver turns to uh, Hannity. Why don't you pan the camera across because some of my guys are doing pain compliance on a Venezuelan immigrant who's caught shoplifting, and he's eating oh, the, and and now he's eating concrete. Uh, So the camera pans across and they're beating the hell out of this kid. It turns out that one, he wasn't a Venezuelan refugee. He was not, he was an American. Uh, Two, he wasn't shoplifting. And yet the camera,
2: Hannity. Right. And 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 number four is Curtis Lee was like, let's create a photo opportunity to basically, you know, uh, demonstrate our mastery of um, physical violence and street violence. Right. This is. Yeah, yeah that's, that... that's. I mean, that's kind of maybe that's our kind of first kind of you know street thug, thug Nazi style street thug movement. Exactly. And you know, another you know interesting thing about that, of course, Curtis Lee was also kind of a blast from the past from the nineteen eighties, and you know was very controversial then. This is this guy who said you know the streets are our control, we you know need to you know vigilante patrols, and uh, the fact that uh, he had this false. Op- uh, photo op is actually kind of a parallel to exactly what um, Governor Abbott is doing. You know, that was my last piece, right? Mm-hmm. He put this um, barrier, a razor wire, i.e. wire designed to act like a razor, right, in the Rio Grande River. So that supposedly people can't ac- get across the border, you know, <laughs> so they can be more easily apprehended when the actual people whose job it is to apprehend them, you know, that's you know, for good or ill, the, the Border Patrol actually can't apprehend these people because of the razor wire. It's only a photo opportunity. uh, And, and you know, they train their cameras on these Border Patrol agents fishing people out of the water where the razor wire is. And it makes it look like they're helping them get to America when they're really apprehending these people. So it's kind of like a um phony kind of George Wallace standing in the schoolhouse door thing. So we're basically hmm. kind of, creating this uh, fantasy mythic space, right, that people kind of consume on a place like Fox. And, you know, will Fox viewers, you know, ever learn that this wasn't some migrant who was here to, 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 you know, commit crimes. And that becomes their foundation for doing politics, you know, for being citizens, which basically means attacking the threat to normal, so called white Americans. It's, um, well, that's a hideous development. Uh, maybe this is the weekend, that the week that kind of goes down in history is uh, the hinge, the turning point.
0: Right, instead of a brown shirt, we had a red shirt. But the defiance of federal authority by by Governor Abbott, and he's also defying the Supreme Court, of, and that's hardly a liberal operation, is often being called Texas the exit of Texas, like uh, Brexit. What's interesting, I find, Rick, is that Both Russia and China's propaganda outfits are really pumping this uh, Texas story for all it's worth. And often, you know, I talk, I cover a lot of foreign policies and national security affairs, and you get a lot of uh, specialists concerned. In fact, one of the reasons why the U.S. was slow in, in aiding Ukraine with military equipment was they were afraid that if you defeat Putin, the whole country could fall apart. And the similar concerns about China falling apart because of its economic troubles that's having. But the truth of the matter is, it's the United States that's most likely to fall apart. We have a demagogue, a deranged demagogue, who's just getting started. And if you saw his press conference today, at which he rolled over the press and just spewed a torrent of lies, it is frightening. I really think if you look at the big picture of this year ahead, there'll be violence simply because Trump is running and he assumes violence and hatred. There'll be violence if the courts disqualify him, which doesn't look like they will, but they may jail him. And then there'll be violence if he loses in November. And there'll be violence if he wins, because uh, he plans on invoking martial law and creating uh, gulags. And there'll be counter-demonstrations against that, and there'll be all kinds of violence. So... Am I being hyperbolic here?
2: <laughs> and next at NPR, we have an interview with the soccer mom in the suburbs who's going to tell us, uh, you know, whether she's going to be voting for Biden or Trump in November. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I don't. You don't need me, and just keep on talking. I mean, this is very eloquent, right? Uh, I mean, it's very frightening stuff. I think this is really where we do kind of need to make a pivot as upholders of liberal values, because if you just kind of overwhelm people with nihilism. Uh, you know, we have to, you know, absolutely, you know, kind of be as astringent and accurate to look this stuff in the eye and not be in denial about it. But, you know, there really are alternatives, right? And these hinge movements, movements are when the alternatives, you know, are most important. I mean, my last radio interview was with a guy in Madison, Wisconsin, and he's like, what do we do? What do we do? And I said, well, you guys did it, right? You guys all showed up for the election for the Supreme Court Justice of Wisconsin that turned out to be You know, uh, the justice that uh, just overruled the kind of gerrymandering that destroyed democracy in Wisconsin. Right. So, I mean, the answer to all this stuff is, you know, if this sounds horrifying to you, you have to show up you have to be a political activist, you know, it means obviously voting. But you know, if there's a school board in your town, that's being overrun by marauders who are lying, you have to show up at the school board meetings, right? If there's, you know, um, the least of the among you a migrant who's being assaulted, or uh, a community of migrants that are being uh, dehumanized, you have to show up at the migrant centers, you know. Um, I think that, you know, I, I was just kind of, Writing kind of a draft, I couldn't sleep, as is often the case these days in my line of work. And I woke up in the middle of the night a couple days ago, and I started writing a column. And I said one of the most important things that the the political right accomplished, you know, over really since the since before the Goldwater uh, election, which was the subject of my first book, uh, that would be in 1960. You know, the election in 1964 was they basically took everyone in America who kind of had a conservative. Temperament, You know, whether it was um, Orthodox preachers, you know, evangelicals or really any religion, priests, whatever, um, you know, people in the military, cops, um, you know, masters of the universe who wanted free reign to be plutocrats, anyone who kind of had a conservative cast of mind and turned them into a conservative political activist, made them understand that Their way of life was under threat. The things they took for granted were going to go away unless they showed up. Right. And one of the failings of the Democrats and liberals, too, um, in the last, you know, let's say 40 years since the, the shell shock of Reaganism is that every person of liberal temperament, whether they're you know, like a therapist or a scientist or someone who just loves nature or someone who has a you know, corner cafe and sees it as a pillar of the community. They don't see themselves as political activists. In fact, they might uh, abjure politics. They think it's too much. It's just it's you know, it's just too much conflict that all we need to do is kind of um, love each other and get along. Right. And that's what kind of has to change, you know. People have to really understand the things you kind of take for granted that, you know, a scientist can say what he says based on his evidence and, and you know, get his recommendations taken, you know, that, um, you know, people think it's good for America to be diverse, you know, good for Americans to speak lots of languages, all this stuff, you know, that uh, that that is really what's up for grabs these days, the most basic taken for granted stuff. And, you know, if you're not seeing this as something that's threatened and that you can do something about it. Maybe you're part of the problem. You know, you can't be neutral in a moving train, and this train is moving very far to the right.
0: Well, in many ways, though, uh, Rick, I think the sort of the nub of the anxiety that's out there that Trump captured in terms of angry white men, uh, working-class men, and basically the, his, the MAGA constituency, is the fact that being simply born white no longer confers privilege. Yeah, and it seems that there's just so many people that can't deal with that.
2: Yeah, it's 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 so true. I mean, I'm just kind of like reading some of the kind of history of Christianity in America, you know, and until the 1950s and say kind of an Ivy League school, they just wouldn't hire, a, 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 a say, a philosophy professor who wasn't Christian. Right. And mm-hmm. so Christians really were kind of dominant. They were just kind of taken for granted as the people who ran the country. And, you know, that starts changing and you get the 60s. Right. You know, uh, the dominance of, you know, that, you know, kind of anyone who, you know, can kind of wear a hair, ha- hard hat and swing a hammer can get a job in a factory and, you know, kind of have a reasonably decent life. That's gone for good. There's lots of scapegoating because of that economic anxiety. That's where, you know, frankly, the, the, a lot of the failings of the Democrats and their turn to neoliberalism is the problem. But yes, I mean, the most powerful driver of reactionary politics is always a sense of desp- dispossession that you had something and it was stolen from you. And that's a very brittle, raw emotion that's very easily channeled and manipulated, you know, very easily, you know, uh, basically twisted, right? I mean, if the factor, factory has gone in your town, unfortunately, within the American context, the response isn't, you know, oh, let's figure out what are the economic policies that made it more profitable to move this factory out of this union town and move it to Mexico. It's... The Mexicans must be stealing my job, right? Mm. And that's that's the playbook, you know. Ever since you know Weimar Germany, so you know, as is so often in these situations, you know, solidarity is the answer. You know, seeing seeing yourself as your your neighbor's keeper, your brother's keeper, your sister's keeper. You know, brother sister per, people beyond the binary, it doesn't matter. You know, we all got to show up.
0: Right, and there's more of us than them. There will always there is-
2: be more of us than them, no. and that that's one of the scary things is that they're achieving this as a minority coalition. I mean, that's why the stuff like mm. gerrymandering in places like Wisconsin is so important.
0: Right. The tyranny of the minority is on its is on a roll, unfortunately. But let's talk a little bit about some of the stuff that you've been working on, uh, Rick Perlstein, and that is, you know, let's look into what are the three sides of the in, infernal triangle
2: that you yeah, see. Let, let me give the commercial, Ian. So I'm, I'm uh, doing a column every week at the American Prospect, which is a wonderful liberal magazine, especially on policy stuff. And if you go to their website, prospect.org, a little page will come up and it'll, it'll say, this is not a paywa- paywall and okay. you can basically write your email in and you can get mm-hmm. my column in your inbox every Wednesday morning. And it's called mm-hmm. the Infernal Triangle, if you say. Right. But what needs to be done to break the Infernal Triangle in order to preserve democracy? I mean, it's 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 not very mystical, right? I mean, it's, a, it's you know, we have more people than they do, but we haven't been showing up. You know the liberals haven't been showing up. You know, they say, you know one of the I, th- I think one of the most dangerous things Barack Obama did to help lead us to this point is whenever he didn't like something, whenever he thought someone was acting, you know selfishly in Washington or you know kind of um being demagogic or uh, not negotiating or you know, just kind of playing tricks, he had a synonym for anything bad, and that and, uh, synonym was politics, right? They're being political, right? And that was a very dangerous thing to say because the answer to all of this is politics. The answer answer is being political. You know, like I said, not just voting, but you know, making sure that everyone you know votes, making sure that right. everyone you know, you know, it's not just exhausted, you know, from you know this onslaught of terrible news, but you know that they understand the stakes. I mean, yes, almost certainly, if he loses the electoral college, uh, Donald Trump, you know, will try shenanigans. His followers will try shenanigans. But that will be a lot harder if the official tally is that Donald Trump won 40% of the vote instead of 49% of the vote, right? So it's really true that you know every freaking vote is going to count in November. Well, Rick, we've run
0: out of time, but I thank you very much for joining us here today. I appreciate it. Okay. Well, keep on doing what you do, and Cheers. Cheers. And again, I've been speaking with Rick Perlstein, who's the author of the New York Times bestsellers, The Invisible Bridge, The Fall of Nixon and the Rise of Reagan, Nixonland, The Rise of a President and the Fracturing of America, as well as Before the Storm, Barry Goldwater and the Unmaking of the American Consensus, and most recently Reaganland, America's Right Turn, 1976 to 1980. He's currently a contributing editor and board member of In These Times Magazine, and is also a contributor to The American Prospect, where his latest column is the real threat at our border. Trump, Republican governors and MAGA media have summoned their armed fanatics to the Rio Grande. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into how 17 donor nations are refusing to fund UNRWA based upon an Israeli dossier many are disputing. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now from Ukraine is Michael Bosakiu, who is a global affairs analyst and a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council, currently based in Ukraine. He was previously the UNICEF spokesperson for Gaza and the West Bank, and he has an article at CNN, Unruh's Day of Reckoning is Near. Welcome to Background Briefing, Michael Bosakiu. Good to be with you. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us, Michael. And uh, since you spent a lot of time in Gaza as the UNICEF spokesperson for Gaza and the West Bank, obviously you had a lot of dealings with UNRWA, the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestine Refugees. And it's really on life support now. And there's some contest over whether the evidence provided by the Israelis that have led to a, a number of governments cutting their funds is being disputed. It's difficult to know. Of course, uh, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken said the evidence was very, very solid. So will we get some clarity? I know that the Secretary General of the UN has begun an independent investigation. So Mm -hmm. what's your expectation on when there'll be some clarity about whether or not the charges that UNICEF had these Hamas fighters within the 13,000 workers that they have in Gaza?
4: Sure. Well, um, yeah, the charges about these 12 or 13 UNRWA workers are quite serious. UNRWA says it was dealt with immediately and they were fired and that uh, their position on this, this is um, a few bad apples among 13,000 workers in Gaza and 30,000 region wide. Now, uh, the Israelis also say they've uh, produced a dossier, which they've distributed to donor countries, And um, donor countries represent 90% of UNRWA's budget, if not more. So they're very, very important. Uh, I've heard a lot of criticism of that particular dossier, that the evidence is flimsy. I have not seen it myself, so I don't want to speculate. But I think at the end of the day is that an independent uh, investigation should take place. UNRWA investigating UNRWA or the UN investigating the UN just doesn't work. I don't think their findings will be accepted by Israel nor by, uh, major donors. And, you know, the reason I say that is way back in 2003 when that horrible, uh, bombing of the UN headquarters in Baghdad happened in which 22 people died and more than 100 injured, uh, the UN investigated itself for security lapse. And that was uh, heavily criticized too. So as I argue in the CNN opinion piece, um, I think the, uh, U.N. Secretary General should uh, appoint a high level envoy, uh, perhaps a former U.N. Secretary General, but even better yet, a former head of state or prime minister from one of the major donor countries to go and investigate, come up with uh, credible findings, and then we move on from this. But that, of course, shouldn't be the end, I think the time has come to talk about the future of UNRWA. It it is a very, very bloated uh, bureaucracy, but on the other hand, it does do essential work. It cannot be dispensed with um, overnight because that will mean very, very difficult uh, times ahead for the Gazan people, which they already have a difficult time. Something like uh, 400,000 are at risk of death from famine at the moment. So kind of a step-by-step thing out of this, but I do think At the end of the day, given all the criticism, given all the focus on UNRWA, that their days are numbered.
0: So there's nine of the major donors who suspended their funding, including the U.S. and the U.K., and done so indefinitely based upon these allegations from Israel. But it was only uh, what the the mandate for UNRWA from these Western countries was renewed in December of 2022 by a majority of U.N. General Assembly members until June of 2026. But the US and Israel voted against that. So what's the US position? Why why would they vote against continuing the mandate for UNRWA, but nevertheless, yeah. pony up the money?
4: Yeah, sure. Well, I think actually now we're up to an astounding seventeen donor countries that have suspended uh, funding. According to CNN, the last of which is uh, Sweden. Um, You're right. uh, The mandate was recently renewed for three years. Um, Israel and U.S. uh, did not uh, vote for it. Uh, I think that's more of the two countries. being close allies, voting in lock, lockstep than anything else. Um, if you listen to the recent statements of uh, US Secretary of State uh, Blinken, you'll uh, get the impression that, yes, for the moment, UNRWA is needed. There's no one, as again I argue in the piece, no other single entity um, in the Gaza Strip, operational in the Gaza Strip, that can replace it or that has the lift capacity. And if I could give you a quick example, for example, us as UNICEF, we would, for example, um, promote and handle vaccination in the Gaza Strip uh, and in the West Bank. We would work with the respective ministries of health, and in many instances, you know, goods like that are handed over to UNRWA to do the actual implementation because they have a lot of health workers, they have the facilities, uh, that sort of thing. Whereas, you know, they they basically um, operate uh, as a uh, almost a municipal bureaucracy they handle everything from you know sanitation to schoolings to health facilities you name it um caring for a a population equal the size of philadelphia so it's a huge uh caseload but what we would do is handle more of the softer interventions psychosocial interventions we would um for example uh organize uh, shadow municipal, municipality councils for kids, so that they can learn, they can be active, and that sort of thing. But um, UNRWA again, they have the, the vehicles, the people, uh, a lot of funding. Although they they are um, chronically cash starved, to do a lot of the things that other agencies cannot.
0: But the fact that what now 17 donor nations have cut funds. If it's if it's spreading and starting at when you wrote the article it was nine now it's seventeen. Mm-hmm. It's what explains that? In other words, if the dossier is being questioned is certainly not being questioned by the countries that are piling on.
4: Yeah, I think um, there's a lot of anxiety here. A lot of the countries have uh, made it clear that this is a temporary suspension given the findings of the investigation. And then you have other countries, for example, like Canada, who are who have. Uh, given, I believe it's tens of millions of dollars to other organizations active in the Gaza Strip, for example, UNICEF, ICRC. But I, I think that's only a band aid solution. If you want me um, to, if you ask me to look ahead, I think what we need to do is take this opportunity to look ahead, not only uh, of whether it's worth keeping UNRWA around or not, but also the future of the Palestinian people, because a lot of people make the sensible argument that UNRWA only perpetuates their state at the moment that, you know, it doesn't um, lay the groundwork for uh, an independent, economically viable um, uh, state. So what I am arguing is that, look, the Gulf states have, especially uh, Qatar, have given a lot of money to the Gaza Strip. I think now is the time for them to take ownership of this problem totally and say, okay, how can we once we get over the current kind of instability and do a bit of rebuilding and resettlement, how do we uh, how do we lay the groundwork for a longer-term solution? And one of those ideas is at the you know pre- previous to um, the attack in Israel, there was uh, something like uh, 72,000 Palestinian workers working in Israel in the construction industry alone. Now they're all banned from working in Israel. They're back in the Gaza Strip and, uh, and the West Bank. And now Israel is announcing that um, 65,000 workers from countries like Uzbekistan, India, and Sri Lanka will be coming to Israel to take their places. So if that's the case, why don't the Gulf states, UAE, Qatar and elsewhere, who have magnificently big mega projects start hiring Palestinian workers? There's a lot of skilled workers there. Uh, they could go to these countries, and then what happens? They send back remittances to Gaza, and those are used to open small businesses, whatever. And less and key is to lessen dependency on organizations like UNRWA. Now, it is a big vision. I admit it. It is. Um, it, it will take quite a bit of work, and also as had been pointed out to me by palestinians themselves is that they only guarantee that for example if they go to qatar or the uae this will not be a one way ticket they're very very afraid of that is that once they leave they won't be allowed to come back so a lot of work to do here
0: but just to get to the to the nub of it if you will uh, michael and that is the extent to which israel after the horrendous attack on october the 7th mm-hmm. by hamas they vowed to destroy Hamas and basically kill all of yeah. the fighters. And we don't know how many have been killed so far and how many are left, but that's the military logic of what, of this attack. Yeah. And what's the sense then, since you've been on the ground there in, the, in Gaza, w- what percentage of the population support Hamas? In other words... If you if you had to destroy an organization and a movement and a a guerrilla army, which is obviously has support amongst the people, I'm not sure by what percentage, then you are at war against all of the people. So, what's the situation there? Is Israel against? Are they at war against Hamas fighters, or are they at war against the entire population, which appears to be the case?
4: Sure. Well. It's impossible for me to gauge how much uh, support Hamas or part of Hamas. I I was there uh, last November um, in Israel and in East Jerusalem, uh, but at that time we weren't able to go into Gaza. But if you listen to the BBC or NPR and some of the right-wing Israeli politicians or officials that have been interviewed, they will say that Hamas is everybody. Why? Because they voted for Hamas overwhelmingly however um my side the humanitarian side would argue that no the majority of people have to be treated as non combatants according to international humanitarian law and so on so you, you can't hold everyone responsible for what 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 has happened and it is very very tragic what has happened is beyond belief i mean you pointed out, for example, that I was, I'm in Ukraine at the moment. And, you know, we all remember the Russian atrocities in Bucha. Well, we thought that's the basement or the bottom of humanity, but these guys managed to go even further. It's absolutely horrendous. So, and the other thing I'd say, I mean, it is very, very difficult to go through a population of that size and try to determine who's part of a mass, who isn't. Um, we know in many different uh, theaters of conflict conflict around the world that, you uh, combatants, terrorists, whatever you want to call them, have a very good skill, if you will, of hiding among innocent population. And then this kind of ends up in collectively punishing them. So I don't know what really is the answer to that. But I can tell you that from my time there is that we met many, many people, whether they're young, they're old, whatever, who their number one goal or uh, kind of dream rather, was to live in peace, to have their own land. And I have to say this because we did work so intimately with a lot of young kids and teenage kids, is that without exception, they would tell us that, you know, I wanna go to school, I wanna open my own business, or I wanna go abroad to, to study and do good and support my family. And this is exactly the type of thing I would argue, that keeps young kids out of trouble, right? Remember, our parents used to tell us that idle hands are troubled hands. But we uh, really saw, you know, like a lot of Palestinian mothers we spoke to would say, look, my, my wish is really for my kids to get a good education. The problem at that time, way back in 2005, 2006, was that a lot of kids were actually denied access to their foreign education, even though they were accepted, even though they had visa, visas and so on. So that, that's, that was a big problem in terms of um, blocking their access to education and one would argue to a better future. So there are a lot of different aspects involved here. But um, again, I'll go back to your question. is It is very, very difficult to determine who's supportive of them, who's not, uh, who's part of them. But you cannot hold the entire population of Gaza as, as uh, uh, you know, part of part of Hamas and collectively punish them. So you
0: point out in your article at CNN, uh, Michael, that the last thing the Israeli defense forces need is to yeah. be responsible for the work that UNRWA does. So you have a conflicting situation here. The, the you've got the part of the right wing government and Netanyahu, essentially. Uh, not really making it clear about what their end game is. And there's lots and lots of suggestions coming from Israeli right that they just want to drive them out and make the population of guards somebody else's problem. That doesn't seem realistic because Jordan and uh, particularly Egypt don't want to take any more refugees. Correct. They've already taken a bunch of refugees f- from the forty eight war who are still there sitting in camps in Jordan and in Lebanon. So... There are peace talks underway now. The Israelis have rejected the, the Hamas's uh, opening offer. I don't know where that's going to go, and I don't. Maybe you have some thoughts on that. But uh, at the end of the day, what do you think is the, the Israeli endgame? Do they yeah. do they want to take responsibility, or will they have to take responsibility for the rubble, or do they have this pipe dream that somehow these people can disappear?
4: Yeah. Well, look, it it became very, very clear to me during my time in Israel in November that Israel just doesn't have the capacity to take on um, what's going on in Gaza. I I say that because right now the war budget is very, very big. They're having to pay millions and millions for reservists and uh, their salaries. And um, they're also uh, having to, for example, pay for a heck of a lot of Israelis who are displaced from the north and from the areas around Gaza. So there's a huge bill. The economy has uh, really stumbled because, for example, I mentioned earlier the construction industry has basically come to a halt. So again, no no uh, position economically and I think politically for, for them to do this. So for the time being, um, as much as th- they may not, not like it at the moment, this will fall on the shoulders of the international community. Um, The other thing uh, that we're getting a little bit of an inkling is uh, displeasure or anger, if we can even put it that way, uh, among the population of Gaza towards Hamas for putting them in this horrible, horrible situation. So uh, probably you'll see more of that sentiment happen as well but again i'll repeat what i I said in the piece and what i said earlier in this interview is that i think a lot of uh the capability uh to uh pull the gazans out of their current situation uh in a humanitarian and economic sense is within the capacity of the gulf states the oil-rich gulf states such as uh qatar and uh, uae and uh, i think a very very quick way to provide uh, uh this economic stimulus and perhaps we can even put it as a glimmer of hope for the future is to open up a lot of uh positions for skilled Palestinians with these within these countries to come and work and again the remittances that will come back would be huge but of course in order for this to happen you need the cooperation of Israel because they uh, control the access and uh they would control uh the the money flows and things like that um for example israel collects lots and lots of money every month from uh, sales tax from the west bank and from gaza and it's very very important that they uh, allow that flow of money to go back as well uh so let's hope um this the The peace talks are successful. Let's hope the hostages are uh, released. Let's hope the fighting stops. And crucially, let's hope that uh, uh, a couple of other things, of course, the people responsible for these heinous attacks are uh, caught and brought to justice, but also that the Palestinians are allowed to go back to where they came from in Gaza, that the rebuilding take place, which is going to be huge, and that people can look forward to some kind of future.
0: Well, Michael Bosicu, I thank you very much for joining us here today.
4: My pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: And again, I'll be speaking with Michael Bosicu, who's a global affairs analyst and a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. He's currently based in Ukraine, and he was previously the UNICEF spokesperson for Gaza and the West Bank. And he has an article at CNN, Unruh's Day of Reckoning is Near. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again on Sunday with another background briefing. Bye for now.